Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. And I'm Dale Denwalt. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, reporter Steve Lackmeyer drops a stunning report about an historically black Oklahoma City neighborhood that feels besieged by industrial explosions next door. The sound of explosions is common in the John F. Kennedy neighborhood, one of Oklahoma City's oldest black enclaves. That community grew out of Jim Crow and red line segregation. City officials apparently weren't concerned about rezoning nearby plots for industrial use in the 1950s. Nowadays, two scrapyards sit just a few hundred yards away from a mix of senior housing, affordable housing, old homes, and newer upper middle class homes. Steve, describe for us what residents experience and how often it happens. You know, for years we've been hearing bits and pieces about this. You'll see uh, little reports about the fire department responding, but you really don't get a full understanding or grasp of this until you get to witness or hear the explosions yourself. And one of the things that uh, is new with this reporting is we have the audio and video of the blasts. These recordings make it clear that these residents are living next to what would be equivalent to an army munitions dump. It is that traumatic. Uh, they're, they're showing the damage that they're see- seeing in their homes. There's a 12-year-old home. I mean, that's fairly new. That's well-built. And yet they've got huge cracks in the walls, the floors, the ceilings. The sheetrock is literally falling off the walls. And that's from an accumulation of the the effects of the explosions over the years. You've got Army veterans with PTSD having to deal with this. My son, who's a retired military, he, you know, doing one of his visits... He heard it, you know, when he was visiting me. And I said, well, what does it sound like to you? He said, it sounds like a war zone. It can happen any time during the day. You can be, you know, planting in your garden. You can be reading, watching TV, visiting with friends who have no idea what you're dealing with. And suddenly you hear this big boom. And it just never ends. And... These neighbors have been complaining for over 30 years and have gotten nowhere. Steve, what causes these explosions? You have two scrapyards. One, Standard Iron, opened up in 1951. Uh, It's local and family-owned. Then you have Dirichberg that opened up in 1968. And it is a global conglomerate based in Paris, France. And what's happening is they're buying cars 
from scrap dealers who uh, uh, are sometimes loading down the cars with uh, compressed natural gas tanks or leaving fuel in the gas tanks of the cars. And they're not being properly inspected, and they're run through a shredder. And when they're not properly inspected, and when those are left in there, that's when you get the explosions. You said that residents have been complaining about this for decades. Um, have the scrapyards done anything to mitigate the noise? And why is this still a problem? You know, you had uh, the Richburg uh, put up a wall of shipping containers a few years ago after things started heating up on them at uh, City Hall. Uh, City Hall was able to change the operating hours to 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. They were allowed to basically do these uh, operations pre-dawn. So imagine waking up to these explosions before it's even light outside. I imagine uh, some of these are still going on uh, when it's uh, winter time and uh, sun rises later in the day. Uh, but they just really, there's been no change there. The last couple of years, there's recordings of more than a hundred of these explosions. They're, they're not really slowing down that much. Uh, they have times where they, uh, crack down in response to city hall starting to ask questions, but neighbors say it doesn't last long that it resumes and it's just as bad as ever. And they find that the scrapyards are pretty non-responsive to them. Uh, they feel like they were there first. They've been there a long time. And they don't have to change anything because they've got the zoning. And for a long time, people took their word on the idea that they were there first. But that's wrong. So if anyone is still wondering how an industrial zone was placed so close to a residential area, let's go back in time to the early days of the JFK neighborhood and how it was formed. I mean, residents in this neighborhood said it's not a coincidence that city planners allowed scrapyards to open next to a black neighborhood. Tell us about that, Steve. Okay, so first of all, you have to remember this area is an area where our uh, black community was forced to live. Uh, back in the earliest days of Jim Crow, about statehood is when neighborhoods started popping up. It was a flood zone. That's why they were, you know, that's where they were to live. Uh, back then, the Oklahoma River, known as North Canadian River back then, had a very different path. It was a prairie river that often changed course. And at one point, it crossed Reno. And it actually uh, flowed into the area where these scrapyards operated. Uh, and just on the other side of the tracks is where you had the black residents being forced to live. And we even found uh, old photos uh, from 1930s showing oil wells being drilled behind someone's backyard. Uh, and then in 1951, you had these scrap dealers, uh, the first one, uh, asked for a rezoning of the area to what is the equivalent of industrial three zoning, which is heavy industry. This would never be allowed in modern zoning. It is considered legal non-compliance, uh, meaning if it were today, it would not be allowed. But because they were approved back in 1951, at a time where we still had uh, uh, segregation in our city, uh, people of color, blacks were not allowed to use white 
restrooms. Uh, they were still being forced to sit on the back of the bus. Uh, they could not sit at a lunch counter where uh, white customers were seated. They could not stay at white hotels. That is the environment in which this zoning was approved. 1951 and Standard Iron opened the next year. Steve, th- that's really a f- fascinating part of this. And it's something like, I think you said something like 78% of that neighborhood is African-American. And and you, you've got um, a whole community uh, trying to, um, I guess, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, uh, if you want to use that, that phraseology. And, and they're waking up uh, a lot of mornings to explosions and just out of nowhere, right? Yeah. And John F. Kennedy neighborhood is pretty unique in our city. It is a historically black neighborhood. And one must understand what that means in the context of neighborhoods that rose up, not just here in the city, but elsewhere. You, you know, we're hearing a lot about Black Wall Street in Tulsa. And we had deep deuce. And we had, uh, this area as well that kind of extended out from Deep Deuce, Northeast Fourth, uh, that were major uh, commercial corridors for the black community. But what it means is you had, you know, people with relatives with houses nearby. You know, it was a very extended family environment in your own neighborhood. You had the corner grocery. You had a lot of churches. You still have a lot of churches. You had a movie theater there at one point. You had a black hotel. You had black restaurants. And it was a really cohesive neighborhood. And then in the 1960s, urban renewal started buying up properties and tearing them down because the white establishment in charge of our city at that time felt like they knew what was better for our black community. That's part of not just our heritage, but cities across the country that went to urban renewal. And uh, it's, it's heartbreaking what they did. Well, they tore down a swath of uh, what they call, renamed the John F. Kennedy neighborhood, but they didn't kill the neighborhood. Uh, and you had some of the black families return as houses were re- built on those empty lots in the 70s and 80s. So John F. Kennedy neighborhood never died, although the southernmost fringe that was closest to the exp- explosions, it it was killed, and it wasn't a renewal that really killed it. It was the explosions, it was the uh, oil wells, it was all the indignities forced in those folks that have those lots empty to this day. You also reported that there could be an environmental pollution angle to this. Um, it's been talked about, right? Yes, and what's interesting is that They've really not been able to get any action on that. Apparently, state legislators at one point agreed to uh, doing some exemptions on air quality uh, uh, standards for scrapyards, which just amazes me. What, what, why? And we really can't get any answer on that. And we can't seem to get any action when it comes to changing this zoning, even though it was clearly... Uh, part of a widespread practice of discriminatory zoning and uh, laws that were used at the expense of our minority communities. And by the way, this is the only neighborhood in the city that's having to deal with explosions like this. We do have other minority and low-income neighborhoods 
that have been forced to live next to some of these unsightly industrial operations as well uh, under the same era of discriminatory zoning and codes. But this is the only case where you have loud explosions intruding on people's lives day after day, week after week, decade after decade. What's a real shame here about John F. Kennedy neighborhood is that it's what we should want. It is an intact black neighborhood, a historic black neighborhood, that really hasn't been gentrified. It has a wide mix of income. You have truly affordable housing in what was the historic Page Woodson and before that Douglas High School. A really nice redevelopment of that historic school. You have senior housing in the old Dunbar Elementary. You have what I would consider upscale middle-class housing that you'd find in Edmond or far southwest Oklahoma City. Uh, you have homes that were built in the 70s and 80s that are more lower to mid-middle-class. You still have some homes that date back to some of the earliest years of the neighborhood between the teens and the 30s. And you have family there. You still have extended families. I spoke to one couple, and they've got cousins living just, you know, next door. They've got cousins living a block away, and then yet more living two blocks away. It's pretty cool uh, because it's a neighborhood. They, they talk to each other. They know each other. They take care of each other. Uh, they do things together. It's really what we should want. And, you know, they talk about how ideal it is because, well, they're, they're not in a flood zone anymore. That was taken care of more than a half century ago by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And they're in close proximity to downtown, to the boathouses on the river, uh, to Bricktown. It, it's so nice for them. And every way, uh, you could take away the proximity to all those uh, destinations. That's still a pretty ideal situation, except for a lot of explosions that can happen at any time, any day. Really, it's thriving. It's 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 well we're well connected. We we care about the neighborhood. Um, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But I just want people to know this is what's happening in our neighborhood. And what would happen? What would you do if it was happening in your neighborhood? And the neighborhood association has been fighting the issue of these explosions for many years. Um, Steve, you wrote that it's a pretty common complaint that comes in at City Hall. Uh, but when you contacted different city and state departments, they all seem to throw their hands up in the air and say they couldn't do much about it. So really, where does the buck stop on this issue? You know, um, it really stops with the scrapyards. Uh whether they're legally required to or not, one has to ask, what is your moral and civic obligation? And even if you have a Jim Crow era zoning uh, vote to protect you on this, what, what is your responsibility? And it's hard to get through to a French conglomerate. By the way, neither scrapyard operation returned my calls, and I called them repeatedly. They're, they know that I was trying to reach them. Uh, I have with this package a list of Q and A's. I was as I was as I was writing this, it occurred to me that everyone reading this is going to be shaking their head and asking, 
why, why is this happening? Why can't they do this? Why can't they do that? So I tried to think about this as a reader would. And I actually have as many of those questions listed in a breakout box with answers as to why they say they can't do something. And they're trying. Uh, since I started working on this, Assistant City Manager Aubrey McDermott has taken the most aggressive, uh, intense look at this. She's done a, uh, a, a study sheet on it to figure out what the history is, why this is happening, what their options are. And I understand that it's not easy or cheap to figure this out because if they try to downzone it, they could. They could be facing the cost of millions of dollars to relocate the scrapyard or compensate them moving if, you know, that were to end badly in court. Uh, another option would be to uh, try to force them to be more responsible for their inspections, to have more inspectors hired and to take more steps and maybe uh, improve their uh, shredding operations to stop these tanks from slipping in and causing the explosions. And that's what they're trying to figure out now. They are talking with the scrapyards. That's the latest I have. Uh, but there's no solution coming out anytime soon yet. Uh, the inspectors say, well, you know, we also have to catch it in the act. And it's so quick that we can't catch it. Which, you know, when you have two years of video and audio showing these explosions, it seems a little bit disingenuous to me. They do have the evidence with those videos uh, that were provided by the housing authority. So I really still don't understand that response. Uh, and by the way, they could spend a week just monitoring it without letting the scrapyards know. But that would be a prioritization of resources and city staff time. And so far, they've not committed to that. And, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, Steve, the housing authority. Um, they're the ones who collected... Um, you know, two years of videos, hundreds of, of cases um, where, you know, these uh, explosions happen. And, and from your reporting and um, video work by Addison, um, uh, it seems like that, uh, you know, the housing authority is on people's side here. Not only do they have clients living in that neighborhood, they also have a lot of people working in that neighborhood too. Oh, the housing authority is probably one of the biggest, loudest champions these residents have. They're even contemplating litigation. And I'm not sure if they could take on a global corporation uh, based in France, but I mean, the residents sure don't have the resources. So we started initially going through code enforcement at the city and then just dealing with that situation and, and uh, utilizing them to, uh, to try to explore other code options. And then uh, we also have, have worked with some private attorneys to, uh, to look at Department of Environmental Quality uh, regulations and issues and then other major code issues that might be possible. Uh, uh, we, are, we are not done with that, uh, but we do have a long way to go. So the Housing Authority has had attorneys that they're working with, talking to. They've got the attorneys reaching out to DEQ. Uh, to all the different code inspectors and authorities that might be involved here to find out why. Why can't we do anything? What, what next step can be done? And yes, litigation is being pondered. It would have to be done by the housing authority if by anybody. 
and they can show their losses too. They've taken damage to their offices. They've got 100 people working out there, so it does affect them quite a bit. Steve, this is a fascinating story, an ongoing issue that that has been affecting a community for decades. So thank you so much for shining a light on this problem and for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. And I hope that the story gets the resonance please heard. I'm hoping that the story might reach folks with the Department of Justice who are uh, putting more effort and resources into their environmental justice division. But My whole goal here is to get people heard. All right. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week. You can read Steve's story in print on Sunday. The story is also online at oklahoman.com, and it includes video of the explosions. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahoman's subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.